You cannot get rid of tyranny by fighting tyrants. For a very good reason. Tyranny doesn't exist independently of something else, which is more important. There is a something else which has to be defined before you know what tyranny is. What's that? It's opposite. Freedom. Get a friend. Get informed. And get involved. We are not Channel Radio. And we are live. Thank you so much for joining us. It is the... Wow, as I smash my mic across the screen. It is the 23rd day of January 2016, and this is podcast episode number 122 for We Are Not Cattle Radio. I am your host, Jake Counts, coming to you live, literally and figuratively, from The Walking Dead, home of The Walking Dead, Sonoya, Georgia. Joining me on the show, as usual, is Josh Wiley of statelesshomesteading.com. Say hello to everyone, Josh. Hello, everyone, Josh. It's uh, <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on, Jake. Uh, I'm digging the new intro, by the way, Professor Galambos. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm trying to remaster it, so we're still working on things. But um, And I actually will have that done. So, everybody, a quick update on the show. Sorry we're having to keep moving the podcast around, but sometimes our personal lives do get in the way of us putting out media content. So... We are now coming to you on Saturday, and it is going to air at 9.30. We are actually recording this, so we don't have to deal with the, and I will say this because I will stop paying you guys, shitty audio quality of Blog Talk Radio. And we will be moving to our own platform. I will actually be hosting an off wearenotcattle.net. And I'm actually, for this year, I'm going to try to curse a little bit less, but sometimes these, um, let's see. Glitches, I guess, would be a good term. Uh, make me a little bit uh, angry. So we're going to move to a format where we can actually produce great content, have uh, as little gremlins as possible, and that way you'll have a show to share with people you know, people you love, and people you like. Mm-hmm. So, well, as, a, as a foul-mouthed millennial, Jake, I don't know if I can make the same promise. The f-bombs just fly out. But that's all right. I'll try. I'll try for you. Okay, you you can give it a run, and then we'll we'll uh, we'll see what happens with that. So we did want to get into a couple of topics today. Our main topic is going to be Bitcoin, but we're going to get into that here uh, in a couple of minutes. Um, we've been watching some of the inner workings of this, and Josh has done some some interesting background research, and we had a long conversation about um, uh, Bitcoin as far as the development goes and uh, what we're seeing out of the um, – out of the community. Uh, all good things, actually, from the community as Josh and I were very concerned as uh, some of this news started to break. Uh, but the reaction from the community has been very well, and these people are putting it together very, very quickly. So it tells me that there is hope for humanity. Uh, maybe not in the financial uh, speculation of Wall Street, but there is hope in the idea of smart contracts and other things that we can utilize the blockchain for. And the most important thing, keeping it out of the hands of the banking class, which is what we all knew was going to happen. But now we are here. The crossroads is upon us. Um, If you are into Bitcoin, if you do any Bitcoin development, anything of that nature, if you're into the the currency as a whole and you bought into the idea of it, um, keep keep an eye out because there's going to be a lot of goings on this year. Uh, a lot of moving and shaking with uh, some of these announcements that are being made. So first, Josh, um, I know you really want to talk about the Oscars. Once again, uh, actors giving themselves awards, uh, being all white and people wanting to boycott it for trying to foment um, racial division here in America. But people, if you've got nothing better to do with your time 
than watch the Oscars and actually care, once again, about actors giving themselves awards, groups of actors giving each other awards, then um, turn the show off. Um, You're not my target audience. I'm so sorry. But maybe someday in the future, you will find out that all of this rhetoric that we're trying to rise above is something that we can really get ourselves uh, into a predicament with uh, if we fall into the idea or fall in love with being entertained. Much like the Romans Jake, did. Are, are you saying that social justice for millionaires is not important in a world where we have 25% real unemployment? No, and you know, 25,000 people a day from starvation die of starvation, but those are numbers that we should not concern ourselves with. We should really concern ourselves with other things. So um, we have the topic of the Bitcoin. We have other topics floating around. I would like to get to this white paper, Josh, and I should have uh, downloaded it from my website, but I am going to go to it because I would like to read the synopsis for everyone. Um, everyone, this is a, a Chatham House document that um, Josh and I have threatened to, to go over uh, on a couple of different shows, and and now we are finally at a point where we, we can talk about it, mainly because I'm going to take the time to address it. After finishing the, the very brief read, guys, it's like eight pages. And if you understand, if you have a rudimentary understanding of, of international finance, if you know who the IMF are, the World Bank, the uh, AIIB, um, any, any of these groups that are really – they're the ones perpetrating all the nonsense that you're seeing on Wall Street for the most part. The instability that they're causing, the idea that they can have all of these different um, these different currency clashes together, um, utilizing once again utilizing crises to to gain momentum for an overarching agenda that they want to push is what we're seeing, and and you see the ramifications, and you see it kind of leak out all over into the financial sector and and what's really going on. So. Let me, as this pulls up on my, once again, dinosaur computer, that will be another change we'll make free for the show. I'll actually have all the other software on my newer box, so I won't have to deal with all this. So let me pull up the PDF here. And this is just a summary. And if you guys want to check it out, wearenotcattle.net. It's the first link up there. And this is written by Chatham House. Um, Josh, help me with the pronunciation. Paola Samanchi. And uh, Stephen the, honest, Honestly, the, the first woman who wrote this, I've read some of her stuff. Uh, quite frankly, she's completely immaterial. This paper was written by Stephen J. Pickford, who is a globalist insider oh, of the highest yes. order. And I will read, yeah. I will read his bio because it's at the end. So here is the, the title of the paper and the bullet points that are subsequent in the summary page. It says, International Economic Governance, the last chance for the G20. The IMF and the World Bank are still dominated by the United States. <laughs> are you tearing paper over there? Oh, no. Sorry. Did that come through? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, live broadcast, everybody. Once again, we don't uh, tape to air. I mean, we do tape to air, but we don't, uh, we don't edit. So uh, Josh is, I guess, tearing books apart on the other end. I, I, I just keep forgetting that the mic on this guy is much closer to the keyboard. It's not up by the webcam. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, starting with the summary once again, six bullet points for everyone to know. IMF and World Bank are still dominated by the United States. I'll skip the rest of it. 
The more prominent role of the G20 since uh, 2008 was initiated to signal the shift of balance of influence towards emerging markets, but slow the pace of reforms to the governments and international financial institutions has hindered this. Once again, the G20 was set up to kind of migrate into these upcoming markets like India and China and so on. Larger emerging markets have responded by establishing new institutions, and China is promoting the use of this um, uh, pronounced the currency, the renminbi. Josh, renminbi. Uh, it's just you. another. It's just another name for the yuan. Okay, thank you. Yeah, because it talks about that in the paper as well. How it's a dual currency system. Uh, in the multi-currency international monetary system. Um, bullet point number four. The United States has opposed many of these initiatives, gee, I wonder why, and remains unwilling to ratify the governance reforms in the IMF. Gee, once again, wonder why, because we would lose a lot of the United States' influence around the world, because that's what this is all about. This is, once again, not about a new world order bringing everybody together. It is about a multipolar world order where they're going to have large factions, and I'll get Josh explain that and and how he's been writing about this at statelesshomesteading.com for about six months. So welcome to Gravitas, Josh. You are pr- proven right once again. I'm from the future. Oh, uh, yeah. You read what they write and then predict what they're going to write. It's amazing. Uh, the United States has opposed many of these initiatives, remaining unwilling to ratify the governance. I already said that. A standoff for the risk and fragmentation of the international system and shifting away from multilateralism. In the process, there is a risk that the G20, the IMF, and the World Bank will become less effective, further hastening fragmentation. Uh, two other more bullet points, and then we'll let Josh uh, – and then I'll read the, the synopsis of the, the gentleman that wrote it, and then I'll let Josh break all this down. The role of the economic governance system, both the G20 and the Bretton Woods institutions – and they have the most, and they were at their most effective when they worked together. But the impasse over reforms, especially at the IMF, threatens to damage them. Once again, the United States kind of saying, "Hey, we're not going to go along with this because we don't need to be taken down a peg." Even though that's what they talked about doing at the World Bank under what was that guy that blew the whistle on that stuff? What was his name? Gosh, dog it. Uh, I'll, it'll I'm come a blank as well. It'll come to me in a minute. Um, Maurice Strong. Where he oh, talked about, yeah, where he talked about how they were going to basically, you know, and they've talked Although, about this in one, many I'd, occasions. And we'll, I'd hardly call Maury Strong a whistleblower. Yeah, that's um, a good point. Now, <laughs> that, that was actually a, a private conversation that he had with a gentleman by the name of George Washington Hunt, the late George Washington Hunt, who yep. is a whistleblower. Yeah, and the one that we brought the document out, and we can read it again at the end, just for people that want to understand how um, the western or as we like to call it the anglo-american establishment which is mostly anything with a western slant to it not just um not just you know america and uh, england there are m- many other facets to that individually and well, last bullet point shaggy dogging that a little bit individually and collectively g20 members have a crucial role to play in modernizing the economic uh, international economic governance Necessarily, steps should include a change in the U.S. position on IMF quotas, G7 support of emerging market initiatives, engagement by BRICS countries in efforts to make um, – hold on a second. I got to read that again. Um, engagement by BRICS countries in order to make the efforts of the G20 more effective and committed leadership from China during the G20 presidency in 2016. Yes, you heard me correct. The G20 presidency in 2016 will be run by China. 
All right, so let's get to this gentleman's bio, which is at the very end of the paper. Uh, once again, only eight pages, guys. Very fascinating read. But here is the background of Mr. Stephen Pickford, a senior research fellow within the International Economics Department at Chatham House. He has worked for the International Economic Policy Issues for most of his career. In 2010, he retired from HM Treasury in London, where he was the managing director, international and finance, and the G7 and G20 financial deputy. Woo! Prior to this, he held positions at both director of Europe and director of international finance at HM Treasury, where he's responsible for international financing issues. In 1998 to 2001, he was the UK's executive director on the board of the IMF and the World Bank. Previous, previous posts include leading the teams responsible for the Bank of England, independence in 1997, the um, Cabert Office Review of the Economic Statistics. He also worked in New Zealand as Treasury Secretary between eight, 1989 and 19, or 1993 on macroeconomic policy and forecasted. He studied economics at Cambridge. England and was at uh, USB Vancouver. So there is the gentleman's bio. And as Josh said, every time I hit the little bell there, that is a globalist institution, everyone. So go back and count up all your Mario coins. And this guy fits the bill for anything that you would want to push from a multipolar world view. So, Mr. Josh, your synopsis of what you read throughout that paper. So before we jump into this, Jake, uh, sure. just to give our uh, listeners a little bit of background, maybe we should tell them why Chatham House is such an important think tank. I, I would I would agree with that, and you know it's very much like Stratford or any of these other groups, but this one is a little bit more significant. So, yeah. So so uh, Chatham House is the uh, colloquial moniker for a group called the Royal Institute of International Affairs, and the RIIA. Uh, Chatham House is the British uh, branch of the of the RIIA. Uh, the one in Amer- their branch in America is known as the Council on Foreign Relations. I'm sure that people know what that is. Um, they have branches throughout most NATO uh, member states, and uh, this is, of course, birthed from the last will and testament of Cecil John Rhodes. Uh, so it, Chatham House is quite literally the um, the the f- public face of what most people would call the Anglo-American establishment. Uh, which is a term that, unfortunately, the alternative media is utterly bastardizing because some people within alternative media are uh, are unwitting dupes and others are <laughs> fairly overt shills. And it constantly surprises me that alt-media audiences aren't discerning enough to know the dis- difference, probably because they sit around reading doom-porn blogs all day as opposed to actually, you know, reading books with binders and hardcovers and they have a lot more text than a quick article by Michael Snyder telling you... Uh, they need to buy gold and silver because the economy is going to collapse tomorrow. Um, but that's a story for another day. Or, um, or listening to the seed man. Oh, yes, of course, the seed man who uh, says, buy bonds now, evidently. Uh, Harry Dent, uh, <laughs> great idea, you know, especially uh, given the routing that they've taken early 2016. But, you know, hey, let's not hold these financial uh, talking heads accountable, alt media or otherwise, you know, just because they're not on CNBC doesn't mean that they have your best interest in mind, people got to be a little bit more discerning than that. But the Jake the crux of this Chatham House article I, uh, is is a theme that we're going to see consistently um um uh, coming to the fore both in alternative media as well as mainstream and that is the difference between a unipolar world 
and a multipolar world or a multilateral world. That's the new buzzword. Uh, when you think multilateral or multipolar, when you hear those terms, just think globalism, people. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's all it is. Um, so, and I think that it's incredibly disingenuous when you have a disinformation agent. He is a disinformation agent, people. Like Paul Craig Roberts um, coming out and talking about the dangers of a unipolar world, uh, a unipolar American empire, uh, and suggesting that a multipolar structure, a diffused power structure in which groups like the AIIB and the BRICS nations have a little bit more say at the multilateral multipolar table. Um, they're playing, what's, what's happening is uh, a Hegelian dialectic is being played on, on the audience here. Uh, we have the synthesis, of course, being unipolarity, being the the idea of empire, a Pax Americana, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and the antithesis, of course, is complete multipolarity, mm-hmm. um, represented by groups like the BRICS and the AIIB and these new emerging market nations taking on more power at these global institutions. So, of course, the synthesis will be a blending of those two things. Uh, it will include the diminishment of... Uh, uh, the power of this Pax Americana uh, and fusing it with this this new system. So what I would like to question readers with, if if or listeners with, if you are um, a consumer of alternative media, then you've likely noticed not just people like Paul Craig Roberts, but an endless army of um, of, of citizizers, re- repeaters, um, who are who are parroting this theme throughout alter- throughout alternative media. And the, the general synthesis of, of this thesis seems to be, uh, Jake, that the, the Fed and the IMF and the World Bank are so evil and they're so bad, which they are, of course, incredibly, <laughs> uh, you know, incredibly uh, disconcerting what they've done to the world over the past 60 years. Yeah. Um, but they offer as a solution to the unipolarity of the IMF and the Federal Reserve, uh, a new form of multipolarity included in the BRICS Bank or the New Development Bank or the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And they, for some reason, call this a solution. Uh, Jake, I don't know if you want to jump in here before we really get down to the brass tacks as to um, exactly who makes up the AIIB and the BRICS New Development Bank well, I and thought why that that, they are not a solution. Yeah, and I thought that that was exactly where I was trying – I was going to steer you is um, when you first looked at this um, because you, you – um, unfor- well, fortunately for you, but unfortunately for me, you have a little bit more free time. So you had the opportunity to kind of dive into this dialectic that they were trying to run on the people – uh, a little over six months ago, I think it was more like eight months ago. Like uh, yeah, it's been quite some time, yeah, almost summertime. Yeah, because uh, the certainly shift- since since summer, I've I've been writing about it. Yeah. Really. So so the BRICS um, was this. Uh, it was a new kid on the block, and that they were going to save us from everything. You know, they're save us from the World Bank, save us from the IMF. You know, quit. You know, loan poaching these third world nations, all of this other nonsense. But then what you came to discover was the recruitment for the people from the AAIB and the recruitment for the people from the BRICS um, took on an interesting shape. And once you see how the recruitment went, then you you came to the conclusion, and it didn't take me long to follow you once you, once you basically laid out uh, all the cards on the table, 
that um, that it wasn't even a bait and switch. It was just a name shift. It, it's yeah. not even it's not even anything remotely different. So um, explain about the the people that were recruited over for the BRICS, uh, where they came from, and why uh, why that's significant when we talk about multipolarism. I think so I just made have... up a world a word right there. Multipolarism. Huh. It's a good one too. Uh, if you're a Chatham House member, maybe you should uh, fill your application out, Jake. I should go ahead and coin that so they can ha- have to pay me twenty five cents every time they put it in the paper. <laughs> well, uh, the the BRICS New Development Bank, as it's been called, is uh, is a pretty blatant example of this. The term BRICS was coined by Goldman Sachs back in two thousand three in a paper entitled "Dreaming with BRICS: The Path to Twenty Fifty. Uh, and keep in mind, this is 2003. This is a full four years before the BRICS was ever, you know, it had even been a gleam in Vladimir Putin's eye. So uh, we have Goldman Sachs coining the term BRICS, uh, and we also have the United Nations Council on Trade and Development, or UNCTAD, um, writing a number of papers about the nature of the BRICS and how they are going to be an important force for sustainable development. And that's really how I got into. Uh, analyzing this hypothesis. Um, yeah, because hypothesis. you weren't even on the trail of this. You were more interested in sustainable development and and how um, local, you know, sustainability boards were were infringing on on you personally in uh, in Michigan and what they were doing to some of these um, to these local municipalities and these you know you know these local counties, which I said yeah, that and then and then I think you went and saw. The correlations here, and that's what took you down this road. Yeah, it's definitely a part of it. I, re- I really think that the the international economic governance part was the part that got me, you know, to really be skeptical about this. And this yeah. was this was early 2014, so um, it, it was really the metals markets that that made me question it on a, on a more cohesive basis. But mm-hmm. Agenda 21 uh, and its global nature just was a very easy introduction for the readers, which is why I chose to write about it first, mm-hmm. because it, it, it Agenda 21 is already such a global and pervasive structure. Uh, it's, you know, the it, it's multipolarism at its finest. So I just sought to, you know, lay out that hypothesis and say, look, here's all of these groups that would traditionally be defined as globalists, like the United Nations and the IMF, and here they are writing all of these policy papers about how the BRICS is not an opponent to sustainable development, but indeed they are one of the chief financiers of it throughout Asia. And uh, I wrote an article uh, called China 21, Anglo-American Sustainability in Asia, um, laying out all these trilateral affiliated corporations, uh, their connection to the BRICS, and how they're funding all these smart cities uh, throughout China, South Korea, Japan, and even in Russia. The Russia one is a separate article. Um, but it, it's it, uh, Brazil, I, I think there's really, uh, there, there should be no debate uh, as to whether or not Brazil is on, uh, on board with Agenda 21. They've been you know, uh, a key proponent of it since Rio 92, so over 20 years now. Uh, that one doesn't even deserve an article, quite frankly. Yeah, probably um, but, one of the other reasons that they won the Olympic bid as well, so... Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, very interesting, isn't it? Right, yeah. and and why uh, the original Rio ninety uh, two uh, conference uh, was in Rio, in yeah. Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Uh, Rio de Janeiro is, of course, one of the premier smart cities. Uh, it's always touted as you know such a sustainable place to live, and they've got uh, IBM's uh, Watson running, uh, ticking away, managing all of their traffic lights and their carbon emissions. So, oh, good for them! I'm sure. Oh yeah, it's, that's progress, Jake. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So, 
th- this is the the face of the bricks, uh, and to get back really quickly to to this other complex, the metals complex. Um, if again, if you're a follower of alternative media, especially alternative financial media, then you've likely heard it uh, prognostications from some very loud talking heads about the People's Bank of China's desire to back the yuan with gold. Uh, and this has been an alt-media meme since, oh, geez, at least 2010, 2011. Yeah, and Steve for, Guy talks about it all the time. Yeah, and for quite some time, I, I believed this uh, claptrap, quite frankly. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly binary methodology of thinking. It says, well, hey, China's buying a lot of gold. Um, mm-hmm. and they're sitting on it, so they must want to do something with it. They right. probably want to become the new world reserve currency. But when you start analyzing this on a more cohesive level, Jake, you realize, one, if the alternative media also financial, f- fundamentally excuse me, accepts the idea that metals are rigged, mm-hmm. that the price is suppressed lower at the COMEX and the LBMA, which is true, mm-hmm. you have to realize who owns the London Bullion Market Association. Well, since 1919... Who is this? That, uh, who is this group again? The LBMA, the London <laughs> Bullion Market Association, mm-hmm. uh, the Anglo-American establishment, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that, is a, that is a gold and silver fix that's run by five families in the city of London. Gee, I wonder you who can those go, are. You can go read about it on their website, people. It's not like it's a secret or anything. One of those families, the most prominent of them, is, of course, uh, the Red Shield, Ross Shield family. Um, <laughs> Enough so. These are the people that are fixing the gold price lower and selling this gold to China. So uh, are you going to say that this is an act of benevolence by the Rothschild family? That they're giving this gold to China out of sheer goodwill after looting uh, almost all of their precious metals through the opium wars almost a century ago? Of course not. This is foolishness. Um, So you have to understand that China acquiring this gold is not really China a sovereign nation buying gold from other sovereign nations. It's a, you know, a global consortium shifting their wealth from one side of the planet to the other. Uh, for what reason, we will see. Um, but for all of these people, with all of their prognostications about a gold vacuum on, uh, you, could go, you could have gone in 2009 and read a policy paper by a guy by the name of Zhou Jiaochuan, who is the head of the People's Bank of China. He wrote a paper entitled Reform, the International Monetary System, in which he states quite clearly that he has no desire to back the, uh, the yuan or a world reserve currency with gold or silver. He would like them to be an element, but he believes staunchly that the uh, role of the world reserve currency is slated for the SDR, or the special drawing right. And that is, of course, the basket of currencies at the IMF. Chatham House has written a number of papers about their desire to uh, give the uh, SDR a gold lining, if you will, backing it with 10 to 15 percent gold to give it the facade of stability. Uh, and of course, while everyone was uh, ballyhooing about uh, fake, not, not fake in the sense of the attacks, but fake in the sense of manufactured terror, uh, ISIS attacks in November and December in Paris and San Bernardino, and uh, they're coming for the guns again. What happened, Jake? Mm. Yuan was accepted yep. into the ACR basket, and nobody noticed. Nobody cared. Actually, I and, think we uh, actually I think we mentioned it. Yes, yes, we did. Um, but of course, none of these people uh, who have been talking for the past few years about the yuan being backed with gold have retracted their statements. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, Josh. Uh, Josh. Hey, what you reading for? 
Yeah, I want to know why you're reading policy papers, man. Just look, the seed guy tells you that, I mean, he's bringing on this guy to go buy bonds. I mean, look, he (laughs) was, oh my God, I cannot believe that I just used that. I can't believe I just used look. Anyway, trying to eliminate some words from my vocabulary. But um, yeah, it's, um, it's really sad. It's really sad to see people get duped like this. And once again, we're not trying to... We're not trying to step on anybody. We're just pointing out the facts that, you know, uh, and I think Josh said it really coherently last time, is that we just want to get down to brass tacks. I mean, we want to eliminate all the uh, all the noise, all the commotion. And um, my new uh, hashtag for every show that I do, and uh, I think it's going to be the, the catchphrase for 2016, is to rise above the rhetoric. So as soon as we can all rise above the rhetoric of what these people are trying to get us to look at, because remember, they don't want you to look at what they're really doing. They want you to look over here. It's the left hand and the right hand, right? It's the, um, it's the, it's the creation and destruction methodology that they're using, the divide and conquer, whatever you want to call it, the divide and rule. The, but, the pillars of Jack and Boaz, if you're a Mason. Yeah, there you, know you go. That means. Yes. So utilizing the tricks that they use, trying to decipher this, and that's why we're coming to some of these conclusions. That's why Josh was way ahead of this game. And um, do you want to continue with the breakdown of this article and what it, what it actually means to have this, uh, this multipolar world that we're going to hear so much about? Because I've already heard uh, Mika Brzezinski bring it up a couple of times. Uh, just listen to her clips in passing, and um, we all know her uh, relationship with... Um, one of the head policymakers here in the United States, if not um, the biggest, uh, on the Democratic side, and that would be Zig Good old Z-Big. And uh, on the Republican side, of course, you have Henry Kissinger. So um, it's really it's really sad that um, the American people have not caught on to the fact that you have two groups on two different teams that are pushing the same agenda, and yet you still care about whether Donald Trump gets in. It doesn't matter, people. Donald Trump might be the absolute worst thing that could happen to America, or it could be something great. I think it would be a travesty, but I look around at all the other yes-men that we have running as a presidential candidate. There is, unfortunately, people, no hope until the bottom is reached. So You want your shit sandwich with mayo or without, Jake? It's, it's One like, might be a little bit more palatable, but it doesn't like, mean it's good for you. Yeah, it's like the South Park. You either get a douche bag or a turd sandwich. So yeah. that's what we're getting. Uh, let's finish up with this article in, in the white paper, and then and then we'll move on to uh, Bitcoin. Yeah, re- really quickly, Jake, because there was an interview that came out two days ago with CNBC, um, and it relates directly to this white paper uh, and the and the notion that the AIIB is a competitor to the World Bank and the IMF. Mm-hmm. I wrote an article back in August or September of last year called "This December Agenda Twenty One is Getting an Update," mm-hmm. and uh, I was pleased to see that that one got passed around quite a bit. Um, but here's an interview from none other than CNBC, uh, and they're interviewing a guy by the name of Jin Lee Kun. And in this article, I mentioned Jin Lee Kun and quoted him. He was the interim head of the AIIB. He's also the former vice president of the ADB, or the Asian Development Bank. The ADB is essentially uh, America's uh, investment bank yep. in Asia. Yep. Uh, it's run through Japan, but it is uh, a neo-mercantile American structure. Yep. Uh, and Jin Lee Kun was the former vice president of the ADB. 
And I wrote in this article, I asked the question or posited the question that the AIIB is probably far more akin to the ADB than, uh, than anything else. And it's not really uh, a force for any sort of change financially or uh, even in the structure of global governance. If anything, it's simply going to be uh, a product of this multipolarity. So in this CNBC interview, uh, the interviewer asks, so just a final question, and I know you've had this one before, but I mean, for those who say it's a competitor to the World Bank, it's a competitor to the ADB or Asian Development Bank, I'm sure you've got a well-rehearsed answer for them, to which Jin Lee Kun responds, you know, Contrary to the expectations of some people who are very much worried whether or not this could be a rival to the World Bank or ADB, this is not true. We have already become very close partners. We are very much grateful to the World Bank and the ADB for their generous support in the course of setting up this bank. You see, when 70 years ago the World Bank was created, the economy was still pretty small. 50 years ago, when the ADB was created, the economy was bigger. Now, half a century later, we are dealing with a much, much bigger Asian economy, global economy. So what's the worry? And essentially what he's saying is, now that we have this global multipolar economy, we need global multipolar governance structures to fund it, to mm -hmm. finance it, and to make the rules. And the AIIB is a part of this. Mm -hmm. So why people think that it is going to you know be some system of gold-plated puppies and kittens and it's going to sp spell a world without usury and an end to central banking tyranny uh again you just need to read the white papers and the policy papers instead of believing everything these alt media talking heads say just because they're not on CNBC once again rise above the rhetoric people that's going to be it man that's the theme for 2016 rise above the rhetoric Oh, all right. Well, shifting gears. We uh, we done with those jokers, guys. Go read the policy paper. It's eight pages. Do yourself a favor. Yeah. Josh and it is I, the reason I recommend that policy paper is because it is an excellent summation of yep. everything that I've been writing about over yep. the past six months. And it's eight quick and pages. it's and it's not high fi high finance terms or anything like that. It's very basic, very simple. And I, I will just leave uh, listeners with this: if you uh, have resistance to anything that I'm saying. Or you would rather live in the land of adult fairy tales where the, the white dragon family is coming to save you from yourself or whatever crap you happen to believe at the moment. Mm -hmm. Just ask yourself why Chatham House is saying the exact same thing as alternative media blogger X or Jim the Golden Jackass Willie or Ben Fulford or Paul Craig Roberts or any of these other clowns. Why are they saying the same thing? It makes no sense until you think about it. So, put your thinking caps on, people. Here we go. For God's sake, strap yourself down! That <laughs> wasn't nearly as loud as I need it. I need to... Hold on a second, Josh. We're making a... Uh, I'm making a... Making a change here. Here we go. This is what I meant to say. For God's sake, strap yourself down! Yep, strap yourselves down, people. We're in for a heck of a ride. That's actually the end of Flash Gordon. Uh, the song by <laughs> Queen, so thought it was fantastic to pull that in there. All right, so let's uh, let's shift into Bitcoin. Um, this is a clip that'll actually set everything up perfectly. Time, Josh, thank you for sharing this with me, no and th and then we'll get into um, the pure chicanery and monkey business that we all knew was coming out of Bitcoin, or at least people that had um, uh, at least bought into the idea, understood the concept, and then um, and then really looked at the technology to see where the uh, 
where the where the loopholes are. So I'm going to play this clip, and when we get back, we're going to bring um, Josh back, and we're going to discuss this and how all of these different uh, developers are now infighting with one another because they didn't solve the problem of the blockchain, which wasn't supposed to be solved. This is why Bitcoin was set up this way. But we'll, I'm sure we'll get into all that. And we'll also talk a little bit more about um, some alternative coins like uh, you know, Dashcoin and, and other alternatives that are out there that actually have solved this problem. That might be a good place to um, put some little money in if, you, if you're so inclined to use cryptocurrencies. So this is off of, um, I think it's off of MSNBC. So take a listen, everyone. Here we go. So this war on Bitcoin that you're talking about, who specifically in the banking world is launching it and why? Um, so what's happened last year is a, a syndicate of 42 banks all got together um, to try and essentially create their version of Bitcoin that works in, within the banking system. Um, one of the huge benefits of Bitcoin is that you can transport money globally for virtually free anywhere in the world to anyone that's got an internet connection, um, but you don't need a bank or a government guarantee in order to perform that activity. So what the banks have done is they've now got together and put together a syndicate because uh, throughout 2015, Bitcoin was the highest performing currency. Um, so what was meant to be a very good announcement that there's record transaction volume um, and that more and more people are using Bitcoin than ever before, um, the banks used that opportunity uh, last week to take um, hire one of the core Bitcoin developers that have been there very early on um, take him away and to work on their version of Bitcoin, their blockchain. Okay, so you can barely hear this if, well, nobody's listening live. I'm still on the idea that we're doing a live show right now. But um, this gets even more interesting as this goes along, and Josh and I will get into the background of this character that left Bitcoin to go to um, help all these major banking heads with their blockchain. So here we go. Is this process somewhat inevitable when it comes to talking about Bitcoin becoming more used, more commonplace, because it also requires a more regulated system? Is that not right? Well, Bitcoin is it's hard for people to understand, but for Bitcoin is actually regulated by mass and code. It works. The financial institutions that use Bitcoin certainly need to be regulated, but the currency itself is, it works extremely well. Um, and that's why it's, it's getting record volume right now is because it works and it's not failed. You say it works extremely well, but we've seen extreme volatility with swings both to the upside and to the downside. That doesn't have anything to do with the currency functioning, does it, Josh? Does, not last time I checked. But. Yeah, I didn't think that volatility had anything. Uh, what, what about volatility in the, in, in the oil game? Oh, I'm sorry. It went from $110 three years ago to what, like 20 Good luck, guys. This is... Why do, why do these jokers even have finance shows? This is ridiculous. Like She probably thought that was a great question. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. I mean, see volatility. Well, um, it's a currency. It's going to be volatile. Good luck. So when you're talking about banks getting involved, perhaps getting involved with their own version, making it more understood by the common public, and perhaps, I guess, increasing use of it, don't you think that has upside as well? Uh, no, well, the, the major benefit of Bitcoin is that it's very, very cheap. Um, to send money anywhere around the world. And it's also a neutral currency. That's one of the, the key benefits of it. Anyone with an internet connection can use it. It doesn't matter how they're using it. They don't need uh, anything. There's no barriers to entry. Uh, when you put that within a banking system, you're going to have um, the, you know, the banks getting the benefit of a reduced cost, but no consumer benefit at all. 
I can't believe we're still talking about Bitcoin. I thought we would uh, put that one to rest in 2016, but it has survived a lot of the critics. But there was fresh aim taken at Bitcoin from an industry insider, which is kind of unusual because it's more outsiders that take a swipe at the currency. And this time, uh, Mike Hearn has been writing about the fact that size limits have not been expanded. And he basically thinks a lot of the fundamentals are now broken. He says whatever happens to the price in the short term, the long term trend should be downwards. So do you think he's got a point? Um, no. Well, what, what, what Mike Holm was referring to is that all of the core developers, miners and important people recently got together um, at a scaling Bitcoin conference in order to discuss now volume is at record highs. How do we scale it to the next stage? And the solutions were put together. Now, Mike had his own version of a solution, which um, wasn't getting uh, the, the traction that it needed. Um, and at that point, this is when the bank syndicate hired Mike Hearn um, and announced last week that uh, Bitcoin has failed. So I question the integrity behind that announcement um, because Mike Hearn knows as well as everyone else that the solutions to scale Bitcoin were all put in place. So. Pay attention. <laughs> all right. So here we go, everyone. Mike Hearn, Josh. Let's give a little background on our friend Mike Hearn, one of the core developers of Bitcoin, way back in the day. How did he first get started in Bitcoin development? That's a good question. So Mike Hearn's uh, uh, programming experience comes largely from his uh, work with and at the NSA front hold company. Hold on one second. I have to um, I have to turn your volume down. I had to I had to jam that volume way up. So go ahead. Sorry about that. So Mike Hearn's uh, coding experience, at least to, to the layman, comes largely from his work at the NSA front company known as Google, where he worked on such uh, panopticonic technologies as Gmail, Google Earth, Google Maps. Uh, he's got his hands in a lot of different figures over there. And sometime uh, after the creation of Bitcoin, I think really around 2011, uh, he just randomly decided that Google was not exciting enough for him, so he became a core developer of Bitcoin. Uh, now, really, people started to become incredibly skeptical of Mike Hearn uh, on a large scale as of last year, um, with a proposal to increase this block size uh, to put an end to this debate called Bitcoin XT. Okay, so before we get too far down this road... For anybody that has no idea of what Bitcoin is, I think we should start with a baseline of um, how a transaction would take place from me to you. Let's say that if I wanted to buy this phone from Josh and I wanted to use Bitcoin, what would take place, how would it take place, and the time, and what's the time frame that all of these transactions and confirmations take place? And then we can ex explain to people the, the idea of the blockchain because I want people to understand how this technology works and why this is such a big deal about what's coming out now. Oh, geez, man. This, uh, I don't know if this is actually a conversation for the layman, but we can try and bring them up to speed as All right, let's as just possible. Yeah, let's just keep it in like five steps how a Bitcoin transaction works. Uh, so if I were to send money from or Bitcoin from myself to yourself, mm -hmm. uh, I, you would broadcast your public key to the network. Uh, I would see that and be able to um, enter your address in, your public address, uh, into my wallet and send you Bitcoin. That Bitcoin would then be uh, broadcast onto the network as having transferred from um, from my private key to ownership, ownership from my private key to your private key. And when you say um, that it's transferred on the in the blockchain, correct? 
Yes. Now let's define what the blockchain is briefly. It's a it's a public ledger for the for the best all practical purposes. Correct. Yes. So the easiest way to describe this is uh, in traditional banking, what you have are legacy software systems where uh, if you swipe your credit card, there's a big server at Visa or Mastercard somewhere, and their closed source architecture is the one saying yes, uh, you're sending money to this person, and we confirm that this is not fraudulent. It's not identity theft. We're going to let this transaction go through. Whereas on Bitcoin, this is not handled by a central database or server. It's handled by a distributed network where everyone can see the transaction. Uh, and the miners on the Bitcoin network or specialized computers are the ones that confirm that the transaction has been sent from party A to party B. So uh, not only is it a far more decentralized system, it's also not a system where uh, someone can intervene. Uh, if I get a hold of Jake's private keys... Uh, and go spending his Bitcoin all around the world, there is no entity like a Visa that can step in and say, hey, you're not Jake Counts, you stole his Bitcoin, give it back. Um, uh, it's essentially uh, financial freedom uh, and all of, the, uh, all of the strengths and weaknesses that come with it. So there are no uh, really mechanisms to protect, protect against identity in the coins themselves. And one of the biggest challenges with Bitcoin currently is the the idea of instant transactions. Let's talk about that briefly, and then we'll get into Mr. Mike Hearn. Yeah, so depending on how much you uh, pay to have a transaction pushed through the Bitcoin network, you can increase that fee to have your transaction confirm or be seen by the miners uh, quicker. Uh, but if you don't, if you choose to set this fee very low, then your uh, confirmations uh, it requires six confirmations on the network to be uh, to be deemed as a okay to make sure that no one has spent these coins twice, or that's what's called a double spend. Um, so it, yeah, it it that typically can take anywhere from twenty minutes to two hours, depending on how how much uh, volume is on the Bitcoin network at any given time. So uh, this isn't a problem when you're buying things online. Of course, because you know you have to pay someone, and then they have to package the good and ship it out to you. Um, but for brick and mortar retail stores, this is a big problem because I can go in uh, and do some. Typically, Bitcoin payments in uh, brick and mortar stores are done through what's called zero conf or zero confirmation, uh, which means that I just trust that the Bitcoin you sent me is indeed going to be confirmed by the miners. Um, but the sketchiness uh, of of a zero conf, conf system uh, starts to starts to break down when you talk about something called a double spend attack, or uh, that would, or you can talk about um, one of the things that Mike Hearn uh, wanted to talk about, which was the uh, reverse transactions about how that can also be detrimental too. Well, RBF is a fairly um, reverse by fee. That's a whole other thing, and it's very new. I don't okay. know if we should even okay. necessarily get right. into it. Although pe people really should look into it because uh, right. it's also a concerning feature that's being uh, – I call it a feature. I, it's more like a virus. But <laughs> All right, so let's get back on Let's get back on task here. So yeah. you make the transaction, so, so it's a, a, a zero confirmation, so it's basically saying that we trust that that money is not uh, double spent. And go ahead. Continue. Yes, but but of course, if I go into a coffee shop and uh, you know I give you Bitcoin, I get my hot coffee and I walk out, uh, and then I do a double spend attack, and you find out two hours later that the Bitcoin never got there, and I just got a free coffee. And if I'm a fairly technically if I'm fairly technically competent within the Bitcoin world, then I could go around town getting free coffee all day long. So of course, this is a problem, um, and you know that's that's a whole other issue in and of itself but that's just the baseline of what bitcoin is okay great so, so let's talk about this yeah. uh let's talk about this guy mike hearn 
Yeah, so um, what Mike Hearn was proposing uh, with, some, with this Bitcoin XT proposal, the reason Bitcoin transactions take so long on the network is because there is a block size limit. Uh, each block is limited to one megabyte within Bitcoin, which means that the um, network can only handle so, so many transactions per minute, per hour. Um, and this is why uh, confirmation takes so long in a world now where we have way more Bitcoin users than we did even two or three years ago. Um, so Mike Hearn proposed a, uh, an increase to the block size, um, a rolling increase, uh, first eight megabytes, and then it would double every some odd years. And the issue with this proposal is, uh, Bitcoin's forces strength is that it is a decentralized currency. So currently I've, I don't know exactly how large the Bitcoin blockchain is, uh, but it's somewhere on the order of, you know, 60, 80 gigabytes. Um, so it's fairly simple for uh, an individual end user to run the entire blockchain on their computer, thus maintaining a decentralized network. If the blockchain, uh, or if the block size limit were increased significantly, as was being discussed in Bitcoin XT, then what it would mean is Bitcoin would essentially have to be run on complex server-side um, services, which would make it no fundamentally no different than Visa or MasterCard or any of these other things. Uh, but that was not all that was in Bitcoin XT. Uh, it also proposed IP logging, uh, specifically of Tor IPs, uh, which is an uh, anonymizing service. So Mike Hearn wanted to um, eliminate uh, the ability to send Bitcoins anonymously unless you were using a VPN of some sort. Um, Sounds like a good agent to me. Yeah, and of course, uh, this opens the door for all kinds of IP logging and nasty shit to... Um, to find out, you know, to connect your name and physical address to your Bitcoins. Yep. Uh, and before this, Mike Hearn proposed um, what's called color, uh, color coding of coins. And this is actually in use right now by services like Coinbase. Um, and right now, the only two colors are white and black. So Bitcoin that has not been spent using illegal activity and is bought using uh, a verified name and address, that's called a white Bitcoin. Uh, and one that's used on places like uh, Silk Road Alternatives. These are called black Bitcoins. And right now, there's really no way to tell, unless you're a service provider like Coinbase, the difference between a black and white Bitcoin. Um, but in a world where know your customer laws, KYC laws, uh, are, um, are far more um, stringent on Bitcoin, then what this will mean is there will be a price difference between black and white Bitcoins or Bitcoins that have been used for illegal activity versus ones that are tied to your identity. So it's a huge fungibility issue uh, within Bitcoin. And Mike Hearn is the guy who, um, who cooked that one up as well. Um, so long, long story short, Mike Hearn's Bitcoin XT proposal was roundly rejected by the miners. Uh, he owned, it requires 75% consensus of all the miners to, uh, to switch the protocol in a hard fork. Mike Hearn got about 10%, uh, and he, in a butthurt, childish manner, decided to run to a group called R3 Consortium and publish a hit piece in the New York Times on Bitcoin. And uh, Jake, you can let the users know exactly what R3 Consortium is, but I would call it Bankcoin. Yeah. Oh, uh, well that's exactly what it was. That's what they were describing in the in the audio clip is what was it 30 uh, 30 plus banks. Um, 42. Oh, 42. Well, whatever. 
<laughs> they're Goldman all gonna Sachs, HSBC, JP uh, Morgan, City. yeah, the good guys, go the list, yeah. yeah, the good guys. He's just good people, man. And um, so that's that's in essence what we wanted to get to because. And let's talk about the the history of Mike Hearn again, uh, just briefly. Um, worked for Google, uh, once again set up by NQTEL, the front company for the CIA, um, and then went on to what was the other subcontractor that you told me about for the NSA? So he uh, GCHQ actually, which okay. is uh, the British version of the NSA. There we go. Uh, and much much older than the NSA as well. Mm-hmm. I believe it was set up in the the in the advent of World War One mm-hmm. uh, for cryptography. Um, but yeah, Mike Hearn was, he has email addresses linking his, his identity from previous open source projects earlier uh, in, in the decade to, earlier last decade, excuse me, to um, a, a SIGINT uh, subcontractor that works heavily with GCHQ. So Mike Hearn has a long history uh, of being a shady government subcontractor uh, and of course, uh, with the exception of his employment at Google, uh, neglected to tell the Bitcoin community about any of these things. So now a lot of uh, his shady behavior in the past is really being put into context. Uh, and Jake, of course, this raised a lot of questions because as you know, and I'm fairly certain that this is true of you as well, you know, we've all seen uh, Aaron Russo's From Freedom to Fascism. You know, we've heard about Nicholas Rockefeller and this idea for a one world digital currency. And when Bitcoin arrived on the scene in 2009, right after the financial disaster of 2008, uh, at least I was incredibly skeptical. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, as to whether or not this was that vision. Uh, And the more and more you see what's going on in Bitcoin, again, no one really knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is or whether it's a consortium of people. But my pervading thesis at this point is, Maybe this blockchain, techno- this blockchain technology is certainly what they would like to build a one-world currency upon mm-hmm. um, through things like R3 Consortium, making it closed source. But Bitcoin is not the blockchain that they would like to build it on. It's simply too decentralized. Yeah. It offers too many freedoms to the end user. And they can't, and lock, it, I- and they can't lock it down. So you have to have a proprietary, you have to have proprietary software. As Josh said, that was one of the key components in all these transactions, uh, going through Visa, MasterCard, all these other groups is that it has to be proprietary software, just like anything like with Cisco or any of these other big conglomerates is they want to lock this stuff down. Um, Apple's the same way. So go ahead and, uh, you wanted to jump in, but I just had to get that out because people really need to understand that you either have open source free software that is that is free to the public and that everybody has access to, everybody can utilize, everybody can look at the code, um, everybody can double check the code, or you can have a lockdown technology which will not get us anywhere. The only thing that's going to help us in in the fight for individual liberation and and uh, and individual knowledge and and moving the species forward is having an open source software. Yes, there are going to be it's kind of like how we've discussed this before and we don't really talk about government that much anymore. Isn't that funny that you and I have kind of gotten even off the topic of discussing government because it's so um, the the concept to me now is just so beyond uh, yeah, it, it it's beyond it, it doesn't even need to be addressed anymore from my perspective. But um but I think what's interesting is that as the species starts to learn that the that we have to govern ourselves rather than have people govern us. And that's with uh, taking the goods with the bads. Like you said, with open source software, there's great, there's great freedom in it, but there's also uh, a, um, 
a price that could be paid for somebody, you know, utilizing theft. You but have to if be you be responsible, right? What it means. Well, you just have to be yeah. an adult. We can't be overgrown kids watching football all the time anymore. We actually have to well, care about what's going to go on uh, financially and, and learn things and, and, well, and well, get well, our well, emotions Jake, in check. Have, a world where you have no one to blame but yourself is uh, is a scary world for a lot of people who don't like to accept responsibility. You know, if you get your Bitcoin stolen, it's probably because you did something wrong on the security side. Whereas uh, if your identity is stolen by a Visa or a MasterCard because you swiped it at Home Depot, yeah. you have a great other to blame yeah. for your financial uh, woes. But it's wonderful, Jake, that you brought up, again, that nature of a centralized system versus a decentralized system. Yeah. Because we already have a perfect example of this in recent memory. We have something like Napster, right? A file sharing service. Yep. But it was run on a server. Yep. So it was... You know, this one guy who is up with a community of people uploading all of these free files and music and videos to this centralized server that people would then download. Mm -hmm. So because it was a centralized server, it was easy to shut it down. Yeah. And that's what ultimately happened to Napster. But what happened to replace Napster? BitTorrent happened, which is this completely decentralized system where it's not a server g serving up files to the users. It's everyone having this file and throwing little bits and pieces of it at everyone else. So you, there's no centralized head of the snake to cut off. It's like a hydra that can constantly grow new heads. So BitTorrent, you fundamentally can't stop it now that the technology's out there. And Bitcoin is uh, analogous to BitTorrent for money. But wouldn't that also fall under the, the idea or the consideration that you and I have had about our actual physical existence on this planet? and about how we are decentralized consciousness. How come it seems like that everything seems to boil down to these simple concepts of, you know, of minimizing everything and pushing it all down to the individual and letting the individual decide and then the individual will have, you know, the great effect on society as a whole because if we all share uh, the same common not common values, but I guess common um well, I guess common values would would definitely help, but if we if we all are educated and we can all rationalize once again i sound like somebody you know prod, you know beating the drum for the soviet union circa 1917 because that's what they thought that they could create was a a, a culture of uh, critical thinkers or a culture of rational thinkers that's not what i'm saying uh, of course we're going to have disagreements but i guess putting bookends on on the in, on the entire thing that we we started the show with the the idea that um, that we need to that we need to step in to intervene in order to to get social justice to me is ludicrous. If, if you don't want um, if you don't if you think the Oscars are BS, then don't tune in because guess what happens when you don't tune in? If you don't tune in, their sponsors are going to get bad returns on their investments, and they're not going to have these award shows anymore. Or if you if you really do feel that vehemently that there is some kind of racially overtone, then why don't you go out and try to make a difference instead of being out on social media? Why don't you go out and try to save one of your fellow citizens and, and talk to them about jury nullification? You know, do things that can actually make an effect. Don't just sit there and bitch about stuff because it sounds good and you feel like you're slighted because of one thing or another. I feel like I'm slighted because I'm short. It doesn't mean that I go out and bitch and moan at the NBA because these guys are all 6'8 and 6'9. I think that's ridiculous, but there's nothing I can do about it. So I think it's the idea and the concept that, that, once again, we have to take ownership for our lives. We have to take ownership for our thoughts. And if you do those things, 
then good things will happen and people will gravitate towards you. I can't tell you how many people, since I have come out of my my intellectual coma, I guess, and really have devoted my life to to trying to become a better person, trying to figure out what's going on in this world, not just spitting a bunch of rhetoric at people. I mean, even though it's libertarian rhetoric, I guess, in the in the guides that I think it might make a better future for everyone. It just has to be you. It has to be your individual thoughts. It has to be your individual actions that will really propel this world forward. And it seems like that we have enough evidence as we look at all of these different things. Central banking is another great example. Anytime that you centralize something, number one, it creates control, it creates greed, it creates all these different things. It doesn't mean that I'm advocating for socialism or anything like that because socialism is not uh, teaching people how to fish. It's giving them fish. It's actually kind of pathetic. It's childish, and, and, I, and I really think that it's not even worth addressing. Um, there means so many books written about it. But, um, you know, sorry to steal all the thunder there at the, at the last minute, Josh, but it just kind of hit me with that, that idea that the decentralization is what we should push for. And maybe we should push for decentralization of government in order to get us moving in the right direction with um, something like taking the federal government down a peg and moving some of the, moving some of the actual decision-making down to your, your local constabulary because if we do that, then you actually have a voice. And I think that that's what people are getting very frustrated with is we have all this information. We have all these, we have these tools. We have all this knowledge. But it seems like that our um, that our voice doesn't have an impact, and the reason it doesn't have an impact is because you have things like the AAIB and uh, and the World Bank and the IMF and all these other, you know, non-sanctioned <laughs> institutions by the people. These are not these are not sanctioned by the people. I didn't vote on who the hell the head of the IMF was. I didn't get to vote on who my representative for all these big, you know, financial consortiums are. I didn't get to vote for any of that stuff. So that's why we try to point out the larger picture to people is that if we can start making change within our own, within yourself, make change within yourself and then let that affect the people around you, start different conversations then we might have uh, something that would take a uh, make a big effect, but um, going out and um, you know getting ready for the apocalypse and and reading doom and gloom blogs, as Josh said, is really not getting us anywhere. And and I apologize to my audience because I was one of those guys for the first two years. I thought I could wake people up by um, yelling and screaming at them and getting them to pay attention, but there's a, a different approach that needs to be made. And some people might like what I have to say. Some people might like what. The seed man has to say. Some people might like what Josh has to say, or Adam Kokesh, or any of these other libertarian minds that are out there. But um, I guess it just matters who resonates with you and, and what gets your your mind out of the fog, or um, rise of what helps you rise above the the proverbial rhetoric that we've all been dipped in here. So, Josh, go ahead and um, finish your your thoughts on this, and and we'll uh, we'll wrap the show as a helicopter yeah, we, comes flying over my house. I think that's it, people. We took a bit of a left turn on that one. Sorry, man. Sorry, I had to run with it. It was something that was just kind of popped into my head. And no, I, thought I, think, it was, I, I think thought it was, it was important very... to say, you know, because it is, uh, you know, you talk about the local, the decentralization of governance structures. You know, as a philosopher, that's one thing I've come to realize over the past couple of years. Is I'm not a, I'm not a prag, I'm not an actual anarchist. I'm a philosophical anarchist. Yep. You know, I, 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 but if if something like localism were actually within my power to, you know. 
to effect and to, and to bring that change, then sure, I would participate in a governance structure despite the fact that it disagrees with some of my moral principles. Well, because I think it's just being ra- – I think it's just being – yeah, and no, I think it's just being rational, you know, thinking yeah. about what you can pragmatic do. Yeah, is pragmatic. Yeah, is. pragmatic is, is great. Yeah. All right. Um, so, But but you, you also brought up really quickly, and this is a whole – because I don't want to get too metaphysical here at the very end. But you mentioned, you know, the concept of human consciousness being a decentralized structure. And if you really think about it, the idea of uh, a bearded man in the sky – is a server-side application for consciousness, is it not? Because it all comes from one individual source. Yeah, so... No, but man, one I, final... no, I thought we wanted to end on that, but go ahead. One final thing. Oh, Hit sorry. It. Just one final thought that I just wanted to throw out there as a, as a theory for which I have no evidence. But the bl- blockchain technology, to put an end cap on the Bitcoin discussion, bring it full circle. Um, the block blockchain technology is such a great concept for... Um, not only individual liberty if it's used in that manner, but also a digital panopticon if it's used for evil. So a part of me wonders whether or not Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever or whatever that is, was a bit of a Trojan horse and was actually working on this technology for some kind of one-world governance structure and instead said at the very end of it, you know what, fuck it, I'm making it open source and I'm going to ruin all of your vision for for the slave society you were trying to build. I don't know. Just a thought. I'm not saying I believe it. not saying it's true. I mean, you always got two options, Josh. Here's what I would do. I'd sit in cow manure, and I'd spread it all over my body. That's what I would do. And I'm not kidding. I'm not laughing. All right, everybody. That's it for the show. Remember, check out Josh's work at statelesshomesteading.com. Check out my work at wearenotcattle.net. Follow me on Twitter, wearenotcattle, the number one. Share the podcast with people you know, people you love, people you like. And if you want to aggravate a, um, a neoliberal, send them a, uh, a copy of the show. I'm sure that they would uh, enjoy the first 15 minutes of it until we start talking about that L word or decentralization or, um, <laughs> heaven forbid, anarchism, philosophical anarchism. Oh, no. Send what, it to your Bernie Sanders friends. Oh, God. They won't even understand Bitcoin, man. It'd be brutal. Well, you know, I guess socialism works in my house, Josh, so it should work on a bigger scale. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for the show, everybody. Thanks thanks again. Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. Rise above the rhetoric. We're going to add catch catchphrases will be abound in 2016. Peace, love, and liberty, everyone. <laughs>